invite you all now to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. I'm going to invite Eva Kettler up here to read our passage for us. So if you would grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 6, and then please stand as we give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Um, this day that we're able to gather together as your people to hear from your word. Uh, please incline our hearts to your word this morning. May your spirit teach us. And ultimately, Lord, may you be glorified today. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, please be seated. Well, it's 
uh, joy to get to be here um, again to this morning. Uh, I love worshiping with you all. Uh, but this week was kind of a different week for me. Uh, for the first time in my job, I was able to hire a new person. Um, and so they started this week, and I'm going through the process of onboarding them. And um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a stormwater engineer. And I'm hiring another stormwater engineer. And the first week of a, any stormwater engineer's career, you have to start with the most basic lesson. Does anyone know what is the most basic concept for a stormwater engineer? <laughs> Water goes down. So uh, there's many engineers who spend their lives that fail at that one concept. We try to send water uphill, and it becomes a mess, and then uh, I get to go and try to fix it. But water flows downhill. It's a very basic understanding, but it's a very vital one. If you don't get it, uh, you're not going to be a very good stormwater engineer. Uh, in a similar fashion, I want to choose this passage in Romans 6 today, um, because I believe it is the basics of this new life that we have in Christ. And it's something that I needed personally to remind myself, what are the basics? What does it mean after we have this new life, after we've been purchased by the blood of Christ, what does it mean for us to walk in this broken world that we find ourselves in? What is the Christian's life relation to sin and to this call to walk in newness of life? And so with that, we get a dive into our passage. And now whenever we do these summer series, we're typically airdropping into a passage. Um, so I find it a little requirement to try to give some context of where are we at? How did we get to Romans chapter 6? There's five other chapters that Paul thought was pretty important you know before he got to this point. And so I'm going to give you a quick recap. First off, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. Now, he's never been to this church yet, but he's writing them this letter, and it becomes this very comprehensive letter. Some people call it one of the best epistles we have because of this comprehensive look at the Christian life. And so he's writing to this church to let them know, here are the fundamentals, here are what it means to be a Christian. And he starts right out the beginning in chapter 1, talking about the grace and the gospel that he has, how he is a minister of this gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the thing that is of first importance, the most important aspect of our lives, both when we become a Christian and throughout our Christian life and into eternity, the gospel will be the most important thing. And he highlights what that gospel means in the next three chapters where he talks about and shows this need for righteousness that we see in the world, that all people have a need for righteousness. We all have sinned. We fall short of the glory of God and we need a righteousness, but we don't have this righteousness in and of ourselves in fact, then through chapters 4 through 5, he explains how the righteousness can only be found in one place. You are never going to earn this righteousness yourself. It is found in one place, actually in one person, and that is only in Christ, in our faith in Christ. And he gets to the end of Romans chapter 5, in verses 12 through 21 where he talks about how since the beginning of time, since back to Adam's day, sin has been in the world. Now, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God. It's any ways that we miss the mark between who God is, between what he desires for our lives. And Paul says that the wages for that sin 
is death. And in Adam, we all are stuck in sin. We all are stuck in death. But then he highlights one who was not stuck in sin, one who came and lived a perfect life for your sake, for my sake. And by his, this one man's obedience, by Christ's obedience, we now have an invitation to come into this new creation, to be this new creation. And it's all through this free gift that we find in Christ. In chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Where we see the law, we see our sinfulness well up. We see more and more sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. While the law has shown how we sin, how we continue to sin over and over again, Paul talks about there is this righteousness that we have that is separate from ourselves. And it's called imputed righteousness. It's righteousness that you can't earn, that you do not achieve, but it's one that's been given to you, attributed to you. Christ sees the, or God sees the perfect works of Christ, and he attributes that to you and to me when we put our faith and trust in Christ. Now it's important before we dive into Romans 6, you have to have that backdrop or else the rest of the chapter, this chapter is not going to make sense. You're going to end up living this life of law that will ultimately lead to death. So we start here that because we have this abounding grace, this new life in Christ, we are called that sin cannot be allowed to reign in our lives. And that's what gets us to our passage here today. We're going to go through in three different sections, a new life that we have in Christ, a new approach of how we relate to sin in Christ, and ultimately a new master. So we start, as Paul started in verse one, with an interesting hypothetical question. Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound. Now this is going back to what he said in 520. For where sin incre- er, when sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So the hypothetical that he's posing here is, well, if God is just able to show more and more grace because of our sin, shouldn't we just keep sinning? Doesn't that kind of make God look good? Doesn't that make there be more grace? And Paul has a very emphatic response to this hypothetical question. He's got the exclamation point going, by no means. He gets serious. By no means. Other translations put it, may it never be. Or one of my favorite ones, absolutely not. So are we to sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. You see, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to have imputed righteousness if you think that you can continue to walk in this dead way when you've been made alive because of Christ. And he goes to the actual question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't keep sinning that grace may abound because we are actually 
dead to sin. And the first place Paul goes to explain what it means to be dead to sin is in baptism in verses 3 and verses 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I love Sundays. I love gathering with you all each and every Sunday. But baptism Sundays just hit a little bit differently. It's just more exciting. If you haven't been here for a baptism Sunday at the crossing, we have a big pool. We remove these wooden covers. There's a pool of water there. And we'll have a person, we invite a person to come and to give testimony, to give witness of what God has done in their lives, how he's extended this grace to them. Because even though they were sinners, even though they were an enemy of God, he has decided to pour his love on them, to let his grace abound in their lives. And he has made them new. It's a spiritual reality that we find that we have died and are now alive. We have new desires, a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And we invite a person to share that reality with us all. And then we take them behind. It's a little slippery, so you have to be careful. And we come into this pool. And we actually dunk them. We immerse them in the water. And what that immersion does is it recognizes them. It identifies them with Christ and his death. You see here, we believe that God came. He lived a life as a man and he died because the penalty of sin required death. And even though he didn't deserve death, we do. And so he died on our sake. And when you're baptized, you're being recognized into that. You're identifying with that. You too are now dying. That's a spiritual reality. But just like Christ didn't stay in the tomb, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And similarly, we hear we aren't drowning people back here. We actually pull them back up out of the water to show they too are now new. They have new life. And then one of my favorite things is we give them this charge that we find here in Romans 6. Now walk in newness of life. And this half of the room will say, until the end. And this half of the room says, forevermore. And it's a beautiful picture. And it's one that Paul relies on here to explain. You are dead to sin. Your life isn't the same anymore. Why would you keep living that old life? That old life died. You have the opportunity because of Christ's righteousness to live a new life. To be alive to sin is to be dead to God. But to be dead to sin makes us alive to God. And so Paul continues on through verses 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The spiritual reality that baptism shows is this one of dying, that we have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says that. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. You see, by crucifying our old self, we are now allowed to walk in a newness of life. So much so that the passage here says that sin is brought to nothing. Uh, One commentator put it this way. Sin has been reduced to a condition of absolute impotence and inaction as if it were dead in your life. You are no longer enslaved to sin. Sin no longer rules in your life. Now we have to remember, this is talking about the power of sin. In 1 John it says, if anyone claims to be without sin, he's a liar and is not practicing the truth. The presence of sin by God's design on this side of eternity is that we're in it. We're in the midst of it. There is still sin in this world. I don't think I need to convince you very far of that. But not only is there sin in this world, there's still sometimes sin in our own lives. Um, I know my own sin. I know that I am not perfect. And I hope you don't walk away here thinking that because there is sin in your life, you must not be a Christian. Again, that's a misunderstanding of the gospel. That's like trying to get water to flow uphill. Because we have been imputed righteousness. Your performance is not what saves you. You are saved by the work of Christ. But that same work of Christ that saves you is empowering you and has actually broken the power of sin in your life and in mine. Verses 9-10 through show that Christ's victory was absolute. To be united in Christ, in His death, in His resurrection, is to be united with Him in His absolute victory over sin, over death. 2,000 years ago, sin's final move was to try to kill Christ on the cross. That's the best it could do. Killing the, the God, the only God who would ever come and live a life and die for His people. But the resurrection has shown that God's move was checkmate. That sin's best attempt to try to kill God failed because He was perfect and righteous and died on our place. He was shown to be absolutely victorious in all ways over sin, over death. John Owen has a book that's really good. It's called The Death of Death by the Death of Christ. So a lot of deaths in there. But we are shown that this death that Christ died to sin brought us absolute victory. And now He reigns victoriously at the right hand of God forevermore, where there is perfect peace and joy and pleasure and blessing, and He waits there for us in this newness of life so that we too may be able to join Him and walk in this newness of life. So verse 11 says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this is where, again, we have to remember ourselves about our imputed righteousness. 
You are not trying to make yourself dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus. You are called to consider yourself, to reckon to yourself, to count yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, some people may not feel that here this morning. Some people may not feel that sin's power has actually been broken in their lives. Some of you may be feeling this morning still gripped tightly by sin, feeling that there's no hope and no way out. Maybe last night you caved in to lust, or this morning you succumbed to that outburst of anger on the way here. And you still feel like, I just have this sin and it just doesn't seem to let me go. If you try to approach that problem with, I need to do more, I need to do, I need to do, I need to do, you're going to find yourself disheartened in a legalistic futility, ultimately doomed to fail. This passage first reminds us, before we get to the do's, it first reminds us, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is a reminder of our identity. This isn't something we're trying to become. It's something that God has made us. He has made us dead to sin, and He has made us alive to Him. And we're called to remember that. A lot of you, if you're feeling gripped by sin, I would encourage you to meditate on this. To meditate that it's not your sin that is judging you in the eyes of God. It is His Son's righteousness. That you can consider yourselves because of the work Christ did. Not because of how good your life is going, but because of what Christ did. Sin is dead in you. You have died to sin and you are now alive to God. So remind yourself of that. Set a reminder in your phone if you need to. Set it every day. Set it every hour. If that will help you remember this critical piece for everyone who is in Christ, you were dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the core principle that we have as believers to come back to, that it's not about our performance, but it's about Christ and what he's done. I hope that we as a body remind one another, that we remind one another each and every day that we're not just using life group as a chance for chit-chat or just talking about the game or the weather or our jobs, but that we're reminding each other constantly that we are dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus, that we may be a community of people who do that for one another, that you may help your spouse remember that, that you may help your friends remember that, that you may remind your kids who put their faith in Christ of that reality, that we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, any attempt to try to pursue righteousness, any attempt to keep going in Romans 6 without understanding that, is going to lead to a mistaken identity that's going to result in legalistic futility and you ultimately are going to be doomed to fail. But for those of us who recognize our new identity, we get a new approach. We get hope that sin's power has been broken in your life 
and we can move on to verse 12, to our second approach here, that we now have a new approach in how we address sins. Not as ones that are now bound to it, that are captive to it, but ones who have been set free from it. And we get to see in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life in your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Sin should not be reigning in our body because God has broken its power in us. And now we get the joy of approaching God and presenting ourselves to him. The language present here has a military connotation. It's like one reporting for duty. One reporting, say, Lord, give me my orders now. I'm here to serve you because you have broken my slavery to this other master. I can now come to you, present myself to you. It says, present your members as instruments. Again, this term has a very military connotation, almost meaning weapons. Present yourself as weapons, not to keep doing unrighteousness, but present yourself to God in an effort to be able to walk in this newness of life. This is about turning to Jesus. It's about presenting yourself in a different direction. That's what it means to be a discipleship. There is no such thing as simply believing in Jesus, but not following Jesus. To believe Jesus is to follow Jesus. When you come to faith, you repent and believe in Christ. Again, not as your identity, but that's the natural outworking of God's grace in your life. The same power that he used to declare you righteous before his sight is the same power God is using to sanctify you. And then he invites us into this work that he's doing in our lives. He invites us to join him, to present ourselves, not to sin any longer. That power has been broken, but to present ourselves now to God for instruments, as instruments of righteousness. So what are you presenting yourself to? I think one of the easiest ways we can look at this is your time. How do you spend your time? Time is one of the most valuable instruments that we have on this side of eternity. We all are only here for a a slight moment in the scheme of eternity. How do you use your time? How do you present your time to God as an instrument of righteousness? I'd encourage you this morning, particularly in one area, to not seed your family time as an opportunity presented to wickedness, but to take that time and to present it to God as an instrument for righteousness. Try to use your family time. It's one of the best benefits you have in your home to discipling your spouse, your children, It's one of the best ways you have of being reminded that you are no longer a slave to sin, but have been made alive to God. Use your time. Use that time for righteousness. Don't use it as a time to rest at the altar of Netflix, um, but rest in God, in his word. Again, not because you're trying to earn anything, but because this is good for you. This will lead to life, to flourishing, to hope, to happiness. 
present yourselves as instruments of righteousness to God. In verse 14, it says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Again, not being under law fundamentally changes the landscape of how we interact with sin. We're no longer trying to balance this tightrope to say, is this a sin or is this a sin? I don't want to fall off in one direction or the other. It's not about just setting a bunch of rules for yourself. In fact, in Colossians, Paul actually talks about the futility of this. It's not about do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, do not, do not, do not, do not. It's not just about if I could just set up the right system, if I just set up all the right rules, then I will find myself righteous. That's living under the law. And that ultimately won't work. If all we're fixated on is the things that we should not do, you're missing it. You're missing out on the opportunity that's presented to us in the gospel. One of the best illustrations of this is I found in golf. So Rich will appreciate this one. It's a golf illustration here. Um, I am not good golfer. I am very bad. I'm particularly bad around water hazards. Um, I lose a lot of balls. Um, and I'm golfing with a buddy, and we come to this hole that I pretty much always lose about two or three balls in every time. And I'm getting ready to line up. I'm looking, and it's, it should be an easy hit. It should just be one, not even a great hit, just a decent hit will get you over the water just fine. But every time I just start looking about the water, I'm like, don't hit it in the water. Don't hit it in the water. And I line up, and my friend just stopped me one time. He's like, stop, what are you thinking about right now? Well, I'm thinking about not hitting it in the water. I just shanked like three of them in there. I'm thinking about, don't do that again. And he's like, stop thinking about that. Don't look at the water. Look at the green. See where on the green do you want your ball to land? Where are you trying to hit to? How are you trying to get that ball to the hole? Don't worry about all the places you don't want to hit it right now. Worry about what you're actually trying to hit. In a similar way, if we just try to set up law after law after law, we get focused on the what we're not supposed to do. We fail to look at Christ. We fail to see Him. We fail to remember that we've been raised with Christ and can now behold Him and that that's the direction we're aiming. We're not trying to perform. We're just trying to get after Him. We're just trying to make our lives look like His. That's what it means here, that you are not under law anymore. You're under grace. It's not about how you performed. It's about what Christ has done for you. You have a new reality. You have a new identity. And now you are no longer under the law, but are under grace. And you now have a new master. And that leads us to the next hypothetical question of, are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Well, because of this, if we have this now rule where it doesn't matter, I don't need to worry about the do nots, do nots, do nots. That's what I heard in church this, this afternoon, this morning. Still morning, right? Good. Um, that's what I heard this morning. It's not about the do nots. So therefore, that doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want, right? Since it's not about law, but about grace. Doesn't that mean I can just kind of live my life? Again, Paul has that emphatic response, by no means, absolutely not. Again, that's a failure to understand the new life you've been given. 
It's like this. What if you had a new job? And so you have this new job, but on your first day of your new job, you go back to your old employer and you show up to work. Like, I'm ready to work. I'm ready to do the old things I used to do. I'm ready to live this new life. Well, first off, your old employer would be pretty shocked by that. Like, what, what are you doing here? I thought you left. I thought you're not working here anymore. And your new employer would be a little perturbed by that as well, I'd imagine. Wait, what? Where did you show up for work today? You don't work there anymore. You work for us now. Why are you still showing up to work at this other person's house or at this other job? You should come and work for us. Like, your job is now with us. That's what this is if we try to live under the law, but not grace. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Sin is a horrible, horrible master. Sin leads to death. Sin is trying to kill you. Sin is trying to destroy you. Sin is trying to work you as hard as it possibly can, only to rob you of your life at the end. And sin is tempting. In verse 19, it talks about this lawlessness leading to lawlessness. Sin wants to tempt you with just a taste. Just try it. Just a little bit. A little bit will be fine. You have that whole grace thing, remember? You can try a little bit of sin today. We're to approach it. No, you're not my master anymore. I belong to another. One of my best, one of my favorite illustrations of this, um, one of the best books there are is the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Rich, Witch, and the Wardrobe. In there you have this, this uh, scene where one of the children comes in and the evil witch is tricking him. She's trying to get him to do her bidding. And she gives him this thing called Turkish Delight. Right? And it's this, she provides this to him and it's in this beautiful package. And he opens it up and it looks wonderful. Inside all of these treats, this wonderful dessert. And she knows something that he doesn't. That once you try a little bit, you're going to want more and more and more and more, so much so that if she allowed it, you would eat yourself to death. And this kid takes it and he eats some and he wants more and more and more. And by that, she's able to enslave him to make him her willing servant to do her own bidding. That's what sin wants for you, for me. Paul talks about When you were a slave to sin, you were free to righteousness. But what fruit did you see from that? How'd that go when sin was your master? What actually happened in your life? Was it this life of flourishing and blessing and promise that it said it was? Was it just a bunch of happiness and joy? Or was it shame? Was it guilt? Was it condemnation? Was it a recognition that this isn't right, that something's not right here. That's what it means when sin is your master. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves 
of righteousness. Again, God has worked in your life. He has set you free from sin and has called you to be a slave. Here in the 4th of July, that could be a little squirrely for us in America, right? And we don't like this idea that we are enslaved to anyone. We're free people here. All right, this is Independence Week. We're going to celebrate a bunch of fireworks. It's going to be awesome. I love 4th of July. It's one of my favorite holidays. It's just a fun time to just be thankful again, like Rich mentioned, for this country, for the blessing we've had. But friends, there is no one here who is free, truly free. Scripture is very clear. You're either a slave to sin and its passions, or you're a slave to God. And being a slave to God, while it may start to build some hesitations in your heart, I just encourage you what it means when God is your master. One of the best representations we see of this in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. When we are slaves to God, He is not a cruel taskmaster trying to whip us into shape. He is a loving God. He loved us so much that He came and died for us, for your sake and for mine, that we may have access to this new life. That it's not about how much you perform, but it's about His work. And when we come to be His slave... We see in verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You're not left with that sin, shame, guilt, and death anymore. Instead, it gives you sanctification. It gives you this ability of becoming more like Christ, more like the object of our affection. We get to be like Him. And ultimately, that leads to eternal life. You see, you've been bought by another master, redeemed by the blood of Christ. And Paul ultimately concludes here, as we're going to conclude, in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, we are very, very glad you're here. But I implore you now to consider your sin, to consider the fact that the wages of sin is death. The wages of all of our sin, my sin, your sin, it's death. That's what you get for sin before a holy God is death. Eternal condemnation, punishment, and separation from the only good being in this entire universe. That's what sin earns you. That's what sin would earn me. But for the free gift that we have in Christ Jesus, for all who come to him to put their faith and trust in Christ, you too can have life. You're not stuck in death, but he's made a way out. He has provided you hope. And that by today, you could come to put your faith in Christ and walk in newness of life. If you're a Christian, I hope that we remember always our identity, that we are consider ourselves dead to sin, 
but alive to God, not so that we may earn his favor or his satisfaction, but because we've been given his favor and his satisfaction. I pray that we consider always ourselves to be dead to sin because sin's only going to lead to death. May we consider ourselves alive to God in Christ so that we too can walk in newness of life until the end and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message that you have for us in Romans chapter 6. We thank you that, Lord, though you have allowed sin to still be present in this world, you have broken the power of sin in each and every one of our lives who call you Lord. I pray that we're able to walk in this newness of life. I pray that we're able to always give ourselves fully, not because your law or because you demanded of us in order to earn your salvation, Lord, but because you bought us and because you invite us into this. You allow us to be yours. You allow us to live in this new life that yields to blessing, joy, and ultimately eternal life with you. Father, I pray that we may remember this always, that we may always come to you, that we may consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Amen.